in the several months since Karen and I were first welcomed into this community. We have had many reasons to count our blessings while enjoying the friendships which have been so freely offered and for which we offer our thanks in return. All of this, it seems to me, stems from our gathering together to share in the great thanksgiving, in Holy Communion, that sure and certain sign that we are indeed one body because we all share one bread and one cup. If this is so, it is a wonder that we have come so far since the days when Jesus stood among a bewildered mass of would-be followers and critics promising eternal life to those who eat his flesh and drink his blood. How could anyone but Jesus have any idea that those deeply disturbing words and others like it would transform lives and change the world? It is both a mystery and a fact that we continue to ponder and embrace to this very day. It shouldn't be a surprise that such extreme phrases have been distorted and misunderstood. There was widespread belief in the Roman Empire, for instance, that Christians were superstitious fanatics who ate the flesh of their God in secret, incestuous love fests with their sisters and brothers. It was easier and seemed to make more sense just to dismiss Christians as a dangerous cult than learn how to listen for the word within the word, which is such an important element of biblical spirituality. Even lifelong faithful disciples can be lulled to sleep by an easy familiarity with, with what are, in fact, powerful, penetrating insights that probe and reveal so much of our inner lives that would otherwise be hidden. For those of us who have lingered long enough in Jesus' presence to realize that there is a method to this madness, it becomes part of our practice to listen carefully whenever his language or behavior confronts our expectations and challenges our understanding. To communicate his vision of what a heavenly kingdom on earth might be like to a people already filled with their own thoughts and experiences while using the only language available frequently meant that the language had to be strange and shocking and stretched beyond the familiar. The words of Christ are expressions of the mind of Christ. If we want to know what Christ means when he uses them, then the disciples of Christ must perceive something of what St. Paul has called the mind of Christ. In other words, if they are to approach him in spirit and in truth, it will be the work of a lifetime and not of first impressions. For my part, and to illustrate, it wasn't until I sat down with today's text from John's Gospel and thought about it in a focused, sustained way that I realized that a lingering question had been answered, for me at least. As a deacon, I have been taught to read the scriptures 
through the lens of what has formerly been called a diaconal hermeneutic. That is, to have an ear and an eye for those things in Scripture that particularly speak of service and justice issues for the poor, the weak, the sick, and the lonely. For that reason, I have been especially attuned to John's unique account of the Last Supper, in which Jesus shocks his disciples by insisting that he wash their feet as an example of how they should be with each other. It is a humble and visceral expression of the one who came not to be served, but to serve. And it accentuates how vital the attitude of service is to the formation of a disciple in the mind and spirit of Christ. But unlike the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John says nothing during that last meal about the institution of the Lord's Supper, as we have come to understand and celebrate it. It is a glaring omission that had to be intentional, but to what end? Was it to elevate the foot washing to the same level as the sacred meal, which by the time of John's gospel would have been a universal norm for the church? Or perchance, did John have something else in mind? I think we can all be relieved that the latter is the case. Can you imagine all of us coming forward today and each week to have our feet washed? No, I think the church has got it right. Let it be about food, food for the body and food for the soul, food that becomes flesh and blood in some astonishing way, food that sustains and inspires, bread and wine, perfection. So where is John's depiction of the sacred meal, if not at the Last Supper? Hiding in plain view, of course. John wants us to realize that whatever we may make of Jesus' call to receive the bread and wine as his own body and blood, it will amount to very little if we do not also share that meal with those who are not yet part of our community of faith. To that end, today's gospel places Jesus on the far side of the Sea of Galilee, among the ordinary folk, near the time of the Passover, just when you might expect him to be in Jerusalem at the temple with the priests and leaders of the land. It is the fourth of five consecutive lectionary readings which describe a series of events beginning with the miracle feeding of the 5,000. Taken as a whole, these events provide a perspective about what the sacred meal can mean apart from the regular Eucharistic worship of a Sunday service. You may recall that a large crowd was following Jesus from place to place because he had been healing the sick, and they were awestruck by the sight and hopeful for themselves. From his seat high on a mountain, Jesus could see they were exhausted, hungry, and empty-handed. Somehow Jesus saw to it that they were fed, which so pleased them, they deemed Jesus a prophet like Moses and a worthy king who could heal and feed them. 
For Jesus, these acts of compassion and care for the body were the necessary basis and beginning of his work among the people, but not the end. And so he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The crowd followed him again the next day, and he chided them for seeking only to be filled by the food that perishes, and began to speak to them of the bread of heaven that endures forever. Believing that they understood him, they said, Sir, give us this bread always. And he replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And the people began complaining among themselves, saying, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I am the living bread that came down from heaven? And they were content with what they knew, and bread remained bread, as if they had never heard Moses say, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus stretched the language further in the hope that it might stretch their mind as well. He said, the bread which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. But at that moment, many of his disciples simply said, this teaching is too difficult. Who can accept it? And began to drift away because they still hadn't realized that Jesus was the Word made flesh. Many of the best minds of the church have tried to help us accept the teaching by offering elaborate and closely reasoned explanations of how and when the bread and wine of the Eucharist become the body and blood of Jesus, or claim that it is simply a memorial. At times, these theories have been more effective as a basis for separating one Christian denomination from another than unifying them or offering real clarity and conviction. But the mind demands its reasons nonetheless. Anglican theology tends to focus on actual participation in the ritual with an open mind and heart, with every physical sense engaged and a spirit longing for a deeper love than it has ever known. God's presence, as Father Thomas Keating has said, is the divine life within us which affirms our basic core of goodness. We believe that presence can be known and touched and consumed in Holy Communion, just as Jesus intended. One of the virtues of John's narrative is that it places the Eucharistic vision, the great thanksgiving in the open air, on a hillside, above the sea, and below the sky, when among the creatures of God, the children of God receive the gifts of God, whether they understand it or not. It is the beginning of a new life for many of them, as it has been for each of us. I have been thinking that perhaps we can learn to set the table in our own homes and receive the meal there with the same sense of awe and gratitude that we feel here during our sacred meal together. Or maybe we can walk into Kempton Hall on a Wednesday afternoon to marvel at the beautiful and sumptuous meal 
and see all of our guests as if they were walking on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And we were standing there with Jesus when he tells us, you feed them. We can accept this. It is not too difficult. We could call it the feeding of the 300. After all, we are one body because we all share one bread and one cup. Amen.